primary sort of illness in Syria remains. It's the regime. I don't see that changing anytime soon. And, you know, again, like the same way that we can't even have, we can't even come to a consensus there about blame and what is happening. We have to still pretend this two sides isms that we also play, play a lot here in the U.S. Alia Malik is director of the International Reporting Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. She's also a journalist and former civil rights lawyer. Civil, you know, so long story short, civil society thriving outside of Syria, you know, absolutely like seen as one of the number one enemies to the Syrian regime inside Syria. Welcome. You're listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Joining me are the interviewers for today's show, Netta Moyarian and Molly Todd. Netta and Molly, would you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, I'm Molly Todd. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Interdisciplinary Aspect Program. Hello, I'm Neda Moayirian. I'm a postdoc research associate at Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Thank you so much, Alia, for joining us. Thank you. Our guest today, Alia Malik, is the author of A Country Called Amrika, U.S. History Retold Through Arab American Lives. She's also editor of Patriot Acts, Narratives of Post-9-11 Injustices. With collaborators, the Magnum Foundation and Al-Likidoy, Alia edited and co-conceived Europa, an illustrated introduction to Europe for migrants and refugees, which was released in Europe in 2016. Her narrative nonfiction book, The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria, was released in 2017. Her reporting has appeared in The New York Times, Foreign Policy, NewYorker.com, The Nation, The Christian Science Monitor, Jadalia, McSweeney's, Guernica, and other publications. Alia Malik, welcome to Trustees Without Borders. We're honored to have you as our guest. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll now turn things over to our interviewers, Netta Moyarian and Molly Todd. Molly? Okay, thanks, Andy. Um, and thanks again for joining us, Ms. Malik. Um, so I want to start us off with a discussion of one of your recent New York Times pieces where you're reflecting on the life and passing of your father in relation to the situation in Syria. And you also covered this extensively in your presentation. Um, and as you close this piece, you state, quote, this exhausting and supposedly difficult to understand conflict seems close to being finally over. Soon money will be made in many countries as the regime turns to reconstruction, which it will use to consolidate its gains, ensuring it remains in power, end quote. So to start with the recent presidential elections, do you still see Syria's future as you depicted in that piece? Thanks, Molly. Love starting off with easy questions. Um, you know, I think Syria's future remains bleak and in many ways independent of what happens in the United States. You have a huge part of the population internally displaced. You have large millions of people externally displaced as well. Um, we've seen 
no change in the regime's position on whether or not it has the right to disappear its people, to murder its people. Uh, there's been no accountability. Um, it has, with impunity, uh, murdered many of, the, of its civilians, used chemical weapons, displaced others. So like those things, those things don't change um, for now. And all those people who are outside Syria, uh, many, of them, many of them have nothing to return to. Either their, you know, their homes have been destroyed or their property has been seized. So these things don't really change uh, if if they're if if you know Joe Biden becomes a, a great president or not. But there are things that are in Biden's power. We talked about this a little bit. You know, the Obama administration, one of its key foreign policy accomplishments was the deal with Iran. And I think by all accounts, the, the Biden administration will look to revive um, some version of that. Uh, you know, Biden has spoke, has talked a lot tougher about uh, holding, you know, about trying to ward off Russian interference in, you know, the United States, you know, United States domestic policies, you know, we, you know, it's possible that they will, that Biden will also be more willing to confront Russia um, internationally uh, in, in, in other, in other realms. And, you know, Russia, of course, is a, is a huge player in, inside Syria. You know, there are, the Saudis and the Turks continue to play a role uh, inside Syria. You know, one way out, you know, the Trump administration was making, you know, brokered a lot of deals between Arab countries, um, Arab Gulf countries and Sudan with Israel. You know, will, you know, are they still trying to close some kind of deal with Syria before the end? And what would Syria get in, in return for that? But I think, you know, the, the fundamental sort of, you know, that article in some of the opinion piece you're talking about in some ways was about my father, but it was really about Syria and like the primary sort of illness in Syria remains. It's the regime. I don't see that changing anytime soon. And, you know, again, like the same way that we can't even have, you know, we can't even come to a consensus there about blame and what is happening. We have to still pretend this two sides isms that we also play, play a lot here in the U.S. So I don't see Syria's future as getting, you know, much better because of a Biden administration, but there's, there's always that possibility. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about this in your talk, um, sort of the restrictions of living under a totalitarian, you know, government and what um, individual actors can do. And, and we're wondering, what do you think the role of civil society organizations can play in Syria in the coming year, um, years and is there even space for these um, organizations right now? No, I mean, that's a great question, right? I mean, the thing is the regime, it, it's not something that only had to sort of consider all these questions starting in 2011. You know, this is a regime that has now been in power for 50 years, 40 years at the time of the, the, when everything started. So the architecture that it takes to sustain its longevity was well in place. And, one, and a key element of that was making sure that there was no effective civil society. And in fact, you know, when I did, I did allude to like these appearances of reforms. I mean, it was very insidious the way it happened in Syria. When Hafez al-Assad passed from power and Bashar al-Assad came to power, he also, you know, married a very beautiful, like British accented, raised in London woman, uh, Asma al-Assad, who became the first lady. And she created something called Syria Trust. And basically any kind of pseudo civil society initiatives have to pass through 
passed through her her organization. So even well before 2011, like when there were initiatives, when civilians tried to start initiatives to plant trees, that was you know very quickly squelched and then co-opted co-opted by 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 the first lady. So and I think this is very hard for people to understand, but the regime was very uninterested in confronting people who were sort of civil society minded. You know, it was much more comfortable confronting Islamist extremists than, than having to, to confront the, the, those people from civil society because civil society activists um, are other Syrians and they sort of counter the narrative that the regime has always put in place that without the regime there to, to, to chaperone between the different groups in Syria, it would delve into some kind of like ethnic and sectarian conflict, um, right? And, and, and in many ways has enabled Syrians to think that might, that might be the case, or be, many Syrians have internalized that as well before 2011 and especially in the last, last 10 years. So, but what, what is interesting is that with so much displacement, there are so many incredible civil society activity uh, initiatives happening outside of Syria, but within the Syrian Syrian um, pockets of diaspora, wherever you find them, whether that's in Lebanon. I sit on the board of Besmoun Zaytoune, which was a Syrian-founded initiative in Lebanon to work with the Syrian refugees in Lebanon. They have created schools. They have um, they've really looked at solutions within a really messed up situation where, like you know, Lebanon can barely you know, provide for its own people, but like they have come up with holistic solutions for Syrian refugees. Um, they've led, um, you know, even in response to the Beirut explosion, they were for one of the first groups on the ground because they already had all these teams and places that help with, with um, shelter. Um, so, you know, Syria's civil society is thriving, but outside of Syria. I mean, look at Berlin, the, the cases that, you know, the human rights trials that are happening, the war crimes trials basically that are happening in, in Berlin. Those are Syrian lawyers um, and Syrian civil society activists who have been, you know, um, active in, in Berlin. Syrian civil society is thriving in, in Turkey on the border with um, Syria, although, you know, the Turks have tried to also, um, you know, um, tap down on that. There were great pockets of civil society in Jordan. So civil, you know, so long story short, civil society thriving outside of Syria, you know, absolutely like seen as one of the number one enemies to the Syrian regime inside Syria. Yeah, thanks. I, I feel like that, you know, connects a little bit into these next two questions we had, and maybe I can just combine them in the sense we were wondering what steps Syrians interested in, in promoting human and civil rights can take in, in their own nation. And it sounds like, you know, you're mentioning the power of Syrian diaspora and civil society to, um, you know, sort of take those actions. Is there, are there, is there space, spaces of agency for Syrians in Syria as well? Um, and sort of what roles do you think international organizations can or should play um, in ensuring the safe repatriation of Syrians who return, who elect to return? Okay, so a little bit, let me try to take that apart. I mean, yeah, inside Syria, in, in regime controlled areas, any kind of sort of like true autonomous um, autonomous civil society initiatives are not are not going to be tolerated. Um, that said, there's, you know, 
people will have to make the decision and are already making the decision of whether it's worth it to have to deal with the regime as a way to sort of in some ways um, be able to, you know, to get humanitarian aid to folks. I mean, you know, and, and that will mean like accepting that regime players will skim you know, what they want from, from whatever is being provided. And I, and, and I'm, I judge nobody who makes those decisions from within, within Syria. Um, on a much more basic level, you know, part of what has happened in Syria is that the very fabric of the society has been shredded. You know, Syrians now perceive each other as, as their enemy, as an existentialist threat. There's a lot of sectarian discourse that you would never have heard in Syria, you know, before all of this. Um, there's like ethnic uh, discourse. So I, I do I do believe that like, you know, and we talked about this a little bit in the talk, like there is something to be said just even within families or within friendship groups of not standing for that kind of language when it's used or employed about others, right? Cause that's part of de you know, human rights or a lack of human and civil rights really can blossom where groups have been dehumanized. And that dehumanization starts in the vernacular and it, and it does start in, in our most intimate um, circles, whether it's our family or our friends. So, you know, that is, that's a way to exercise agency and to, to not, which you can see happening, right? I mean, you can see that kind of happening here. You can choose not to hate the, you know, not to see your, your fellow Syrians as your, as your enemies. Um, in terms of international organizations, I mean, this is where it gets much more complicated, you know, for the UN and, you know, and these organizations that are working in Syria that are living in the four seasons that are, you know, still posting pictures like of going to go to dinners in places in old Damascus that none of us can go to. I mean, you know, are they doing Syrians a great, a great service? I mean, I, I don't know. It's not for me to say that. I mean, I, I'm sure for the Syrians who are receiving some kind of aid, it, it is, it is important, but like, you know, all of this, needs to have, I mean, in an ideal world, happens in a place of justice and accountability, right? If there is only impunity, if there is no accountability, um, then, you know, it becomes quite complicated. And, and in terms of like models, like I do believe like what is happening in Berlin with, um, if you look at the ECHFR, like the Europe, the, the German lawyers working with the Syrian lawyers to bring these cases. I mean, that's, that's a way of like, that's a kind of support that, that is um, incredible. And in terms of like delivering aid to inside Syria without cooperating with the regime, I mean, a lot of the Syrian organizations in the bordering countries have been effective at doing that. Now that's getting harder and harder. Um, and the Turks, for example, you know, a lot of, a lot of, on the, the, border region between Syria and Turkey is where a lot of Syrian organizations set up and were delivering aid from and relief or within Lebanon. And, you know, when, when, um, when the U.S. announced its new set of sanctions, and, and I'm not going to get into the good or bad of sanctions, part of the over-enforcement of that saw Lebanese banks or Turkish banks or, you know, banks in Erbil and northern Iraq, like, seize assets of Syrian organizations that were doing good, that are not sanctioned, not on the sanctions list. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, what can international organizations, you know, 
really help them to be able to continue to do their business for their funds to be secure. Because I have found that the most effective uh, responses have come from organizations that are either Syrian or Syrian diaspora founded. I mean, they kind of know what their communities know more, need more, and there's no overhead for the fancy expat salaries, you know, of the folks who, that it caught, right? I mean, we, we all love those gigs, like to be based in Amman or Istanbul or Beirut and on an ex, you know, on the expat salary. That's, you know, it's a nice way to live life. Um, and to also feel like you're saving the children or whatever else the organizations are called. But I just personally, like all my family's money or when I fundraise or my family fundraises, we always fundraise for um, Syrian organizations or Syrian diaspora organizations. Thank you so much, Alia. Based on this uh, insider view, I wanted to ask the next question. So journalists with limited access on the ground rely heavily on online activists for video and visual content. This reliance may create a risk of accepting a partial or potentially misleading narrative. As someone with political and cultural fluency who has lived in Syria and knows the language, how do you how do your reports differ from those without your access and privilege? How does it? I mean, I hope that like how it differs is like obvious in if you if you read any of my work. I mean. Um, Political and cultural fluency, I would say, is really important for covering um, other places. But I don't think that's the only thing that differentiates my work. I think, you know, I, I think I don't look at myself as a, a reporter on conflict or a writer on conflict. Um, I'm not only coming to these places in their times of, of crises. So I just think that I'm reporting on Syrian life and Syrian life has taken this, this twist um, of, of late. And I think a lot of people come to Syria to understand why, why is there, you know, or, you know, why are, why is ISIS here? What do, what do, why, what is so attractive about ISIS? Um, you know, or why, why do they hate us? I mean, I think all those kinds of, like, I, I come without those, like, so yes, I come with political and cultural fluency, but I also come without those frames and those lenses, because I guess it's just not exotic to me. It's just a country and a people and they're living their lives. And this is like the really not amazing moment that they're living through uh, right now. And those are things that, you know, I teach my students that, I mean, we, I teach them to contest the very idea of insider and outsider and sort of really to break down what it is that it, what it, what, you know, what are we, what are we, what is a shorthand for, right? So for me, insider is shorthand in part for political and cult cultural fluency. I guess that's probably one of the harder things to tame, but also for someone who's done, you know, disavowed themselves of like the kinds of lenses of looking at these places as if they're other, as opposed to just us. Exactly. Thank you. The other question is, have you experienced any self or external censorship filtering while reporting on incidents inside Syria or concerning Syrian refugees? I mean, I think it's always tempting, you know, when we talked about this a little, when people have been so dehumanized or like their portrayal or the coverage has not been particularly um, fair or human, there is that temptation to overcompensate. And, you know, like, oh God, they just looked like a jerk in that moment. But I think readers, I think if you present people in their fullness, the good, the bad, and the ugly, people can take, they can handle the ugly. Um, you know, and it's not my job to do PR. You know, PR, does it really get you anywhere? Does anyone ever really believe the PR? I mean, that's just been my experience. But, you know, I also wrote about my family. And there were moments where 
And that's difficult. And, you know, somebody once asked me at a panel and they, they said they couldn't, they don't know whose the quote comes from. And I haven't been able to find it. I've looked. But the idea of like having a writer in the family is like having an assassin nearby at all times. Um, you know, and I think that is true. And I was conscious of that. But I mean, the book is pretty no holds barred, you know, from the first line. Um, when it, it was very quite frank about my great grandfather's like uh, womanizing, you know, which I, you know, I think made many people unhappy. But I mean, I kind of, I just feel like people show people in their fullness. Yeah, thank you. That's so important. And um, definitely, I think the narratives we get on the news often do not show people in their fullness. And it right. makes me Either think about yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like, yeah, either terrorists who are victimizing or victims. And that's really like, you know, um, in, in this run reading, I assign about like Africa coverage. The writer said that, you know, Africans are portrayed as objects of compassion, not as protagonists of their own story. And, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's, a, that's quite a difference. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like there's space in between the narrative of terrorist or victim, right? Yeah. And those are kind of the two we get. And it's sort of that similarly that insider outsider dichotomy. But well, thank you. So um, we want to give some time to talk about Europa. So you were the content developer and editor of Europa, an illustrated introduction to Europe for migrants and refugees. And you mentioned this in your talk, obviously, but we were wondering if you could share a little bit more about that project and its goals. So it kind of came out of conversations between a bunch of journalists and photographers, because one of the things that I, you know, we all encountered at different parts of that massive outflux of 2014 and 2015 was like refugee or people making this journey, constantly asking these questions like which one, which country has the better schools? What will, you know, da, 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 or how do we get here? What's the best route to take? Um, and so, you know, as journalists, we usually are reporting, you know, well, at least in international journalism, I mean, we're often not reporting, not creating this journalism for the people that we are covering. And this was an opportunity to kind of do more of a, like a social journalism kind of project to actually harness our skills in the service of people who needed information. Um, and you know, first, you know, the idea of the one photographer is like, let's just show them like what they need for the journey. Like they need box cutters, they need this. And I was like, I, you know, as a lawyer, I was like, absolutely not. Like we're not, you know, no. But like, you know, when we sort of step back and we're like, what is the information um, people need? Like I said, in the talk, I was really guided by the conversations I kept having as we made this journey that, um, you know, people would say nothing, nothing like, um, like this has ever happened in the history of the world, you know, I'm so ashamed of the places we've come from. Look at these like kind of like perfect idealized places in Europe that we think we're going to. And like I said in the talk at the same time, people in Europe were being you know, pretty xenophobic and almost forgetting their own history of war and displacement, which is not an old history. It's like, you know, 70 years ago, the entire reason there's an EU was because they're like, we need to stop having wars amongst each other. Um, so we, we thought about how do we create a place, like how can we make this book, as much as it's a guide, also a, a place of recognition. Um, you know, and I had seen a lot of like demeaning guides for refugees, like telling them how to use toilets and stuff as if like they, they don't come from places with toilets. And so, you know, this is information, it's a guide, people can choose the parts that they want to read, but it's also like treating them as people who 
who understand that there is history and understand, you know, um, you know, who don't need to be shown just how to use toilets, and, you know, and especially if you write to them in their own languages. So it is in, in foreign languages. And the, the English and the French are not all, only for my people who are making, being, you know, doing the migration, but also for Europeans to be able to kind of be reminded of, of their history. So that was, that was sort of the idea behind the project. And I, and I had me, I wanted to show this picture of people like on the rescue boats reading Europa. I mean, it, it, it got around, it, it was in the camps as well. Um, you know, we, we included those beautiful like oral history because as you mentioned, Patriot Acts, like I love the power of oral histories. And so these are ways of like having conversations between between um, the, the people who were newly arriving, the people who had arrived once upon a time, the people who had been there for a long time. And, you know, they just spoke their stories, you know, for, I don't know if you got a chance to see them, but like when I present the book, sometimes I can read from some of the oral histories. There was this one woman who had been a German refugee. She, you know, she, she was on one of the sides of parts of Germany that she was ethnically German in the former Soviet Union. So they were all kicked out at one point. And when she arrived um, in Germany in the seventies in West Germany, you know, she was mocked her hair for the way she wore her hair, her clothes, I mean, which is not so unlike the, you know, the way people were mocked for the way that they looked coming over um, in, in 2015. And then how, so how difference can be constructed even where we might not even see that there's difference. And she goes on to become um, a, a tour guide of what was the refugee welcoming center back then. And, you know, I don't know, it was, it was a way to sort of like, again, like I said in the talk, you know, when home is unattainable, what replaces it may be recognition, maybe, uh, you know, the ability to see each other in each other. So that was the idea. And, you know, and with the Magnum photo archive, I mean, it's pretty powerful rebuke to that kind of forgetfulness around, you know, what was Europe before it was, before it became the Europe that we know today. That's long-winded, sorry. No, that's great. That's, I mean, that's really powerful too. And I think also connecting to your talk, you know, with the discussion of sort of histories of amnesia or the way that the history of amnesia is sort of the, the way that it's normally done. And so providing this resource kind of to get people to engage is, is powerful. Um, and we're wondering- I don't know why I'm so afraid of history. Like, I mean, as I just, like the insanity over the Confederate statues and the, I mean, just like, you never, you're not going to get to the other side of it until you confront it. And like, really, of all the things to confront in this world, that is not that hard, honestly. Like, you know, it's not, it's not a deluge. It's not like we're not being turned into refugees yet. Like it is, I mean, honestly, what a bunch of wimps we've proven ourselves to be. Yes, I'd have to agree. I think there's lots of factors that play in, but maybe we'll save that for another um, podcast. Um, <laughs> no, we'll do a podcast on the ego. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with this, with this book is, are there, do you have a way or do you plan? Uh, yeah, to I mean, we should, we, cause we also exist as a PDF and an online thing. Um, my part from it has moved on, but like, I, I wonder actually if they've updated. I mean, that's a great question. I do not know the answer to that. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, and then just the last part on Europa, you include a section on hope. 
And can you share why you did so and what role you see hope playing in the ongoing Syrian refugee resettlement crisis? And more generally, do you see a role for hope in ensuring human rights for refugees? Did I have a section on hope? Because I'm like a misanthrope and I'm not particularly optimistic in general. Um, Was there a section? What what did we say in that section on hope? I can't remember. Um, I think it's the one that has the narrative of the Afghan doctor going to Greece. Oh, because, I mean, can you share right... I mean, now I feel like I have to perform a little. I mean, obviously hope is important. Not losing hope is critically, I mean, it's, I mean, it's part of human nature. Um, hope in the ongoing Syrian refugee resettlement crisis. Yeah, I do, I do. I mean, I am hopeful about that. I think a lot of the countries are starting to see the benefit of having Syrians there. I mean, if nothing else, in Northern Europe, the cuisine has greatly improved thanks to all these Syrians being there. Um, but, you know, Syrian, you know, a lot of these people came over already educated, you know, they're paying into the pensions, you know, I think, I think, in a, in, and this is what I mean, like, when sometimes it is set from the top, I mean, like, Angela Merkel has taken a, a you know, proactive step in saying, like, the, you know, we, this is part of who we're going to become. Um, and so I am hopeful there. I mean, there's obviously a lot of pitfalls. Like I said, like, you know, will will labor have like a racialized aspect to it? You know, are Syrians only going to be seen in certain kind of jobs? Will they be able to meet their, their full potential? Um, also, like, you know, for a lot of Syrians, like, it's just like Berlin. I mean, there's a lot of sex and drugs right now. You know, a lot of people going to like, well, not in COVID, but like, you know, this explosion of like, personal liberty has sort of of course translated into people doing all kinds of things that are harder to do in more like socially conservative um, cultures and because of you know because they are subsidized by the state there's a little bit more room for that kind of exploration let's say Um, but uh, you know I mean that's that's part of life Um, do I see a role for hope in ensuring human rights for refugees I mean, yeah, we roll for hope. Well, we have to hope that we can ensure. So that's the role for hope, not losing it, I guess. Um, but I mean, but I don't want to like, I don't want to end on too Pollyanna of a note because like, I, you know, it, we are in a sober situation, right? Like the best question or the hardest question I got asked when I was on book tour in 2017, I phoned into like some nice high school in, in, in Mexico. Um, you know, and so like, I think Mexican students are a little less, um, I mean, they're a little more world, more exposed to like some of the things that happen in the world than some of their U- U.S. counterparts. And this one student said to me at the end, he's just like, so, you know, let's say we're back at, you know, let's say we're in Syria right now. It's, you know, everything has happened that's happened. And you have a child who's our age. You know, what, what do you tell them to do? Do you tell them to shut up, keep their head down, not rock the boat, but in that way we can remain together and you can stay in the country um, do you tell, do you send me away because you don't want me to have to live with that kind of like rot of like having to shut your mouth and not being able to speak and not being able to be free? Um, you know, and you send me so that I can have some kind of future in, in exile, knowing that like we'll never sort of 
be living in the same place again? Or do you tell me what is morally right and tell me to stand up for what I morally believe in knowing you are like, you know, you are condemning me to probably being, you know, detained or disappeared or killed. I mean, you know, that 16 year old understood that that were, those were the choices, you know? And, and so the pragmatic, you know, so the selfish parent, of course, keeps the child close at home, the more, you know, and the more pragmatic one, the one who's willing to maybe tear a piece of their, their you know, their, themselves and let, let them go into exile to see them once a year at best, you know, maybe makes that choice. But like you got, you know, very few people are going to make that that third choice. And so, you know, yeah, so immoral impunity, immorality, these things stand. I mean, so hope, so the only hope I have is that like somehow that all those people who gave up their lives and gave up their stability, somehow it pays off in some kind of accountability, right? But as long as impunity festers, like I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna be the person that's gonna, I'm sorry, like I want to be that person. And I'm sitting here in beautiful sunny Baltimore, but like, and, and I think those are the choices you are, we are asking people to make. And so I don't think, you know, so you have to be really hopeful to believe that we're moving past that. Sorry, sorry, Molly. <laughs> like, but that's, I, I really, you know, I think that, you know, so hope, yeah. I mean, I have hope for people who can be in societies that do not allow themselves to go down that road. And which is why like the past four years in this country and this inter-election period are devastating, right? Cause someone, some of these things, once they get you know, once you destroy institutions, once those cats are out of the bag, like, you know, we, it's not, it's not a good place to be in. So yes, I'm going to hope that this, you know, the, the change in administration means, um, you know, a rever course reversal on those things. Thanks so much, Thanks. Alia, for your response and for your honesty. Um, the next question is, uh, in the road to Germany, $2,400, a narrative comic. You powerfully reported the nuanced experience of several Syrians fleeing their war-torn homeland to a hopeful, if uncertain, future in the West. Given your work on that effort, what do you see as the role of art in sharing narratives of violence, brutality, and displacement without diminishing the experiences of those involved, while seeking at the same time to raise awareness and empathy in your audience? Good question. Well, you know, I teach my journalism students that if they want to learn about a place, they have to also consume the cultural production of the place, the art, the films, the theaters, the literature. I mean, that's obviously super important and it's a place of, um, in many ways, collective memory. I mean, it's, it's really informative for the, for the student of a, of a place that they're not a part of. Um, but I also think I don't want to fetishize. I mean, I personally am not interested in fetishizing violence and brutality. Um, so I kind of let the, the the person I'm writing about guide that. You know, if that's truly what defines them and that's all they're talking about, and this is the you know if they're in a place of PTSD and these are the things that keep, then you know, okay. But I'm not going to put that on the um, on the person I'm writing about if that's not really true to their experience. Um, and I also think that, you know, I think a lot of times we, we think that if we sensationalize suffering and sensationalize brutality, that somehow that'll get people to pay more attention. Um, 
And that's another thing we talk about in my classes. What is the difference about from reporting from a place of sympathy versus empathy, right? And I think when you try to really emphasize someone's victimization, um, then you are trying to play on that that, that sympathy. And I, I don't know what that. I don't really think that gets you long, you know, long live, long lived, viable, and sustainable um, empathy towards these other these other peoples. Um, and you know, it's sometimes the little details. Like I can, you know, when when I share that detail, how Yusuf tried to learn how to swim on YouTube. I think that's a lot for me, and I think for a lot of people that lands with a lot more like relevance to their lives and poignancy and relatability than you know telling you what chemical you know how how a chemical attack stops your lungs or you know i mean i mean there's a place for all of it i guess but you know i try to let people i try not to define people according to the story i want to tell and let, let their story define and let them define themselves for the story that i tell yeah exactly i think that's why we use the art because you're your books and your pieces are all so nuanced and beautiful that you totally understand it's not for a reason or for a goal that this word is here. It's because it's there because of its natural existence there. Um, our next question is, have you been following another refugee trail recently? How do the conditions, laws and policies that refugees encounter today differ from those that were in place four or five years ago? I mean, so obviously I'm still following the ones that I traveled with and that's part of my long-term reporting project to inform the next book. But, you know, I, I was in Samos last summer on vacation, but of course I went to see, like I wanted to see what was going on in the refugee camp, the formal one and the one that's called the jungle, which is where more of the people live outside on the slopes of the hill. And I, you know, um, how are they different? I mean, this is also something that's, so how are things different? In many ways, a lot of those people are Afghans, right? Syrians got a privileged um, and expedited sort of welcome, which is kind, you know, I, I think people recognize that the Syrians were more, you know, in many ways, slightly more educated or had more money. They were seen as more desirable, but, you know, all those Afghans, like that the United States directly had a role in destabilizing their country. Um, I mean, you know, I can, on the one hand, understand why the Greeks, you know, and are like, why is this our problem? Um, and obviously the change in the laws and the policies of the U.S. Um, have, you know, have exacerbated that. Um, and how the different those, that were, I mean, if I think four years ago, five years ago, there was more of a desire in Europe to welcome. And I think the mood has changed a little. Um, and, and unfortunately, those people who are in Lesbos in a camp that just burned down, I mean, no, things are, things are quite bad. And I should just point out for your listeners, there's another refugee trail right here in the U.S. and, and you know, the migration across our southern border. I don't, I don't report on that one, but I do continue um, to, to, to follow it. And, I, you know, I think there's this, there's this dichotomy in people's mind that the people in the eastern Mediterranean are escaping legit wars and that somehow the people coming across the southern border aren't but like you know if you just a little bit of like exploration you can see that you know Honduras, El Salvador, like these are places that have been destabilized by a ton of violence and these are not also I mean these are also places that the U.S. has had a role in. Um, so you know conditions laws and policies have changed uh, there's less I would say empathy less welcoming and 
and unfortunately what does not change is a willingness to sort of understand our role as Americans in, in these places, in these tragedies. We hope that eventually, you know, people will understand or Americans will understand their roles. I mean, I guess I would think that that's part of the reason that we're in education and interested in, in writing and, and, and pedagogy. Um, so uh, thank you so much, by the way. Um, and we want to move towards your memoir, That Home That Was Our Country, um, where you depicted life in Syria with all its nuances. And in this work, you worried aloud in that volume that, quote, by going about our lives, we had become bit players in the regime's effort to maintain that everything was normal. And you continue by stating, no doubt many residents voluntarily participate, participated, hoping that by performing normality, they could will away whatever was coming to Syria. And we were wondering, as you reflect on that passage, if you feel there were any alternatives to this reality to which you pointed for Syrians who deci decided to stay in the country. I mean, the alternative was to acknowledge it and to be arrested. You know, I think of that woman who would who was wearing a red wedding dress in the middle of the trial. I mean, you know, or, or the, if you read my book, the woman who I call Carnations, who tried to acknowledge that by handing out carnations to people in downtown Damascus with tags that just said "Stop," you know, "Stop the killing," and she was arrested and, and taken um, for that, along with many others. So the alternative was yes to acknowledge it publicly and to to then pay the price for it. I mean, and then more minor alternatives were to sort of confront, um, you know, family, you know, I think it, it wouldn't be much safer to confront anybody else. But I mean, as I did, I mean, there, and there were tensions in my family, because there are members of my family who clearly have always been against, you know, against the regime, saw them clearly for who they were, and, you know, did not waver in that. And then there were other members who also knew who the regime was and had always seen them clearly, but after 2011, like, had gotten the memo to that, like, dissent was not going to be tolerated. And then there were people who I really believe convinced themselves that everything was, uh, you know, Islamist and, you know, there was no true, you know, I mean, fake news starts, I mean, that they started doing that in Syria, solid, you know, nine years ago, um, which is how, it's scary how playbook, playbook it can be. Um, but that's why, you know, what folks did this summer with, you know, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement was people refusing to go about their lives as if everything were, were normal you know, after like yet another killing of, a, of an unarmed black man. So, you know, I think, you know, the alternative, the alternative when can be very powerful, if it is not, you know, if it's not a risk to your life and limb, then yes, it's sort of, you know, I think they stopped the country from going about as if everything were, were just normal, um, to which we owe them a debt of gratitude for all the people that came. I, mean, I you know, I came out in New York as well, although like that shouldn't be included because a journalist really, you know, supposed to participate. But of course I went to the very first one just to like, it was in my neighborhood. Um, so yeah, the alternative is to, yeah, for, for Syrians in the country, like, yeah, not now. Tough, cost is high. Yeah, thank you, Avia. Um, our last question is, when writing and reporting about the lived experiences of Syrian refugees, Arab Americans, and those who decided to stay in Syria, who 
who have you seen as your target audience? I mean, truly anybody. I mean, I try to make my work accessible to both the novice and the expert. I mean, there are passages in my book that, you know, I mean, no Siri needs me to explain like where the one square was in relation to another. But, you know, I think people, you know, people extended me the willingness, you know, people, everybody wanted to read the narrative and like, you know, the, for the contextual stuff that was there, especially the history, a lot of Syrians don't know that because like the inside Syria, the way, you know, obviously there's so much power in teaching history that it has been taught in a, in a propagandistic way. Um, so no, I see anybody as my target audience. And I have been really grateful to find that the book has been embraced by Syrians as, as much as it has been by folks all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, what were your goals as you reported on conditions and concerns? And have you seen any impact or? Yeah, like what were my goals in writing the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, telling a true narrative and like stopping the war. So definitely didn't succeed in the latter. Um, you know, human eye, you know, just, just being seen, mm -hmm. recognition. I mean, that's like, I mean, it's such a low bar now. Like I, but yeah, I guess, yes, recognition. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be, okay, I have got to have some lunch now. Thank you so much. Do you guys much. need me for anything? No, it's really, I wish we could have all done this in person. It's been so nice. You guys seem like you have an amazing community. Okay, yes. Take, everybody take care of your health and your loved ones. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Alia Malik, for the chance to hear and learn about your work. Thank you to our interviewers, Molly Todd and Netta Moyarian. You've been listening to the Trustees Without Borders interview with Alia Malik. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Trustees Without Borders is a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Trustees Without Borders features leading practitioners, thinkers, writers, and designers all working to strengthen community capacity for innovation and creative change. You can find an archive of Trustees Without Borders interviews and other information at our website, www.ipg.vt.edu. Until next time, remember that as trustees of community, we all are called to work without borders or limits on our ideas and aspirations, without borders on what we think is possible to solve problems that keep us from achieving a just, inclusive community that works for us all. Thank you.